I don't know what you think the greatest comeback of all time is. Uh, maybe David Cameron, I don't know, this week. Um, or whether you think it's Rick Astley, big fan of Rick Astley. Could we take that? Uh, could be... Uh, oh no. <laughs> Some people agree with that. Could be Nixon, Churchill, so many comebacks, if you like. And I Googled this week uh, the top 10 historical comebacks. And Nixon was in there, Churchill was in there, uh, David Cameron wasn't in there quite yet, um, and Rick Astley wasn't in there either. But Jesus wasn't there. And that just sort of made me sad because for me, this is the greatest comeback of all time that has changed your life, my life, and the course of history, that changed the Roman Empire, that changes our lives today. And what's interesting is sometimes we think that last week is the end of the story. As Nate brilliantly made us look at the cross of Christ and introduced the fact that it is finished, Jesus has died for us. Many, many people leave Jesus there. A good man who lived a good life safely in the tomb, and that's where we leave him. What a sad story. Almost like that's where the credits roll, as we're going to hear in a minute. And we live in a world often where that is the story. And yet we have in this fantastic account something radically different to that. Uh, I was in Merry Hill, or Merry Hill uh, in Dudley a few years ago. Uh, if you know the shopping centre, it, uh, some love it, some not so much. Uh, I don't know whether it's your hill or your hell. But anyway, it is a shopping centre that is always full of people. And we were doing some vox pops and some interviews years ago, filming young people talking about whether they believed in an afterlife or not. And one young guy really made an impression on me. He said, I think I'd believe in an afterlife if anyone ever came back from the dead to say it all ends well, there is life after death. Amazing. So we were able to say to him, well, Jesus did that. He's done that. Somebody has come back from death, beaten death for us, and come back to say, it's all going to be okay if you believe and trust in me. And uh, I love that story. It was so amazing to be able to share it with him and share the good news of that. And he was dumbfounded. He never heard that. And that is, sadly, uh, our nation, our world, that people are growing up, leaving Jesus in the tomb. Uh, but we're not going to leave him there today because we believe that this is not the end but the beginning of our story with his resurrection power. So we're going to hear from Steve today, Steve Price, who uh, many of you will know, who uh, he and Pia are going through their own real uh, amazing journey of faith at the moment. Uh, and uh, he has shared his story. And uh, look out for the John Wayne impression. Uh, it's very impressive. So so let's, uh, let's hear Steve Price's story. My name is Stephen, and this is the short version of my salvation story. I used to travel to school on a bus, a long journey, and one day, going past the various houses, someone had put on there, you've got to picture this, um, a normal up and over garage door painted black and in white lettering were the words Jesus is alive and the first time I saw this it was the double take moment where it, it did that say what I thought it said Jesus is alive what a strange thing to put on your garage door how can Jesus be alive then the next thing I remember was walking through the city centre 
and there was one of the Birmingham City Mission preachers preaching on his little soapbox and he said it, the same words he said Jesus is alive and you can know him in your heart and it stopped me in my tracks Jesus is alive there he is again how could Jesus be alive I was thinking because growing up I watched the Easter films and we all know what happened Jesus is crucified in the end and he dies and then John Wayne says surely this was the son of God and I think the screen credits roll then that's it that's the end of the film sad sad ending so first of all Jesus is crucified so he's dead and even if he somehow didn't die I was thinking it's 2000 years ago so this chap who was preaching in the Birmingham City Boring Market I waited till everyone had gone and had a little chat with him how do you know what makes you think Jesus is alive but it sparked a little hope in me because I thought if there's anyone ever that I'd like to meet it would have been Jesus because he was so full of love and just a beautiful beautiful person and the man said Jesus is alive because he was raised from the dead and no one had ever told me this part of the story he asked me for my address all he wanted was to send me a letter and a part of the bible the gospel according to John which is the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and um when I'd asked him, how do you know God is real? He said to me, you can pray and ask God. I feel confident if you ask God to reveal himself to you, he will in a way that you know this is God. So in my little bedsit in Mosley, I sat, prayed that prayer. God, if you're there, show me. And I sat there and I read this gospel according to John. And knew this isn't a story that someone's written this is a diary of what happened and to see Jesus's birth and his life and his death and his resurrection uh, I ended up in floods of tears I picked up the phone and rang this, this man whose name you put and said to him I want to become a Christian and uh, he was elated of course he was so he drove over picked me up took me back to his house so we prayed the sinner's prayer there uh, and then he drove me back home and i remember him saying how do you feel and i didn't feel any difference i was a little bit concerned has god accepted me and he said oh yeah you've prayed the prayer god has accepted you and the angels in heaven are rejoicing right now because you're one of the souls saved. Um, so yeah, I was waiting for some magical feelings or something. But now I know the word of God tells us that if you believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So it's God's word and it's faith that saves you. But yeah, Jesus stood there with his disciples and said, I was dead, now behold, I am alive forevermore. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's amazing.
and one day he'll return. So that's is that the short version? <laughs> I said I, I love the fact that Steve uh, shared that he thought that the credits would roll and that's where Jesus would stay and then suddenly he discovers as we ourselves can discover this resurrection life in Jesus and actually the resurrection of Jesus changes everything it changes everything in the gospel and actually it changes everything in our life now because this is not the ending <laughs> these are the shadow lands as C.S. Lewis puts it and the best is yet to come so how do we know that let's examine these eight verses they're, they're jam-packed verses uh, but what I love about these verses is they're very human and very miraculous, aren't they? There's that sense of the blend of the ordinary and the extraordinary. So picture the women, they're on their way to do a sad task. They're on their way to anoint a body of someone they cared about, someone that they thought was going to lead them in a different way, and they are sad. They've got their spices and their oils, and they're going, and they're actually even saying, as we would, how the heck are we going to move that huge stone? So there's a humanity there, isn't there, that they're thinking, actually, there's three of this, but the great stone is not going to be able to be, it's not going to be possible uh, to move that. We read, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, again, a very human comment from Mark, very, uh, saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Now, this is interesting because three women do not think they'd be able to do it. So this is some stone because women are strong. All right. So three women are not going to be able to do it. So we can't then suddenly say, oh, probably Joseph of Arimathea did it on his own. You know, the guy who owned the tomb. Maybe he did it. And some people believe that. But actually, if three women are thinking this is, this is a big, big stone that could not be rolled away. We sing the song, death could not hold him. He silenced the boast of sin and shame. And that's what I think of. I think of life bursting forth. And whether that power rolled the stone away, we don't know. It's different in different accounts. But one thing all accounts agree is that the stone is rolled away. And Jesus is risen. Uh, in the 90s, I remember in the 90s, there was a lot of talk about a non-miraculous faith. In fact, I grew up around that kind of liberalism a lot. People would say to me, it doesn't matter if you, if you believe in the resurrection sort of as a metaphor, or if you believe that actually it didn't really happen physically, and I was told that's okay. You know, it's a sort of metaphor for good triumphing over evil, but it isn't, is it? It's either true or it isn't. We either have a miraculous faith or a non-miraculous faith. And in that same time, that sort of season of liberalism, which is still around, of course, today, a guy called Frank Morrison took it upon himself to really investigate, was this just a good idea or a metaphor or a story? And he thought that it didn't really happen. He thought that actually he would prove by writing his manuscript that actually the resurrection didn't happen. And he said, I began writing one story and actually ended up writing a completely different book, which is called Who Moved the Stone, which I really recommend if you haven't already read it. And he says this, somehow the perspective shifted, not suddenly as a flash of light, as in a flash of insight or inspiration, 
but slowly, almost imperceptibly, by the very stubbornness of the facts themselves. Slowly but very definitely, the conviction grew. It was the strangeness of many noble things in the story that first arrested and held my interest. It was only later that the irresistible logic of their meaning came into view. And I love that last phrase. Here's someone who is scientific, who is logical, who is looking at the facts, but he's saying there was something irresistible about the weirdness of it, the randomness of it, the ordinary and the extraordinary coming together. And he remained absolutely convinced that this was a physical resurrection, that this was a rising from the dead. So we have the stone rolled away, and we have eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts. If you read in 1 Corinthians 15, that was written just months after Paul had encountered a risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, we actually hear Paul say this. He says that actually Jesus, the risen Jesus, appeared to Peter, then to the 12, and then to more than 500 people in one place. Now, I don't know if you'd got your head around that before. I think I, I used to think it was 500 different occasions, but it was 500 people in one place together that saw the risen Jesus. And what I love is the person comes through again here in that Mark says, um, sorry, Paul says, and most of them are still alive. So this is written at the part where most of those people are still alive. So it's again saying, look, you can scrutinize this. Go and find some of those people. And wouldn't you do that? I would do that. If something like that had happened and we'd all witnessed it, I'd say, you know, go and check it out. There were 500 of us. And he says, most of them are still alive, but a few have fallen asleep. In other words, go and get the power of testimony that Jesus is risen. And he goes on to say, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless. And he uses a word, kelos, which means it would have no power. So it's not just useless in tense, it's futile. It's that actually, unless Jesus rose from the dead, our testimony rather than our preaching, our testimony, our story would be without power. And that really encouraged me this week as I was thinking about the kind of massiveness of speaking on the resurrection, you know, that actually it would be without power. There is power when we claim that Jesus came back from the dead because it's true. Another piece of evidence that may or may not surprise you is that women were chosen as the first people at the tomb, as the people here in the story. I love that because women weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law. So if you were going to make up a story that you wanted to change the world, you would not have chosen women because they were discredited and not believed. Now, we have evidence of this from Celsus, who was a Greek philosopher in 2 AD, a highly agnostic person to Christianity. And he said this, Christianity cannot be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women, and we all know that women are hysterical. No, no amens there, please, okay? Uh, we all know that women are hysterical. I'm sure he died very soon after that, uh, probably at the hands of women. I don't know. But certainly, that is how they were viewed. So if you're going to tell a story or make one up or exaggerate it, do not start there. And yet Jesus, as always, does something radically different. 
And I love that. And as someone who speaks and, and preaches, I, I found this hugely helpful. I, I, I didn't go to Bible college. I'm not theologically trained. And particularly when I was starting out, I would go to speak in churches who had never had women speak before. And it almost didn't matter what I said. People would come and say, oh, thank you for being a woman. And you think, well, <laughs> I did it all on my own. You know, and you think, well, actually... It was powerful for them because they hadn't heard it. Now, hopefully, things have changed. But what I learned is that actually my authority in doing that comes from this passage. That Jesus appears, that he, that he gives this message and says, now go and say, go and tell all of the disciples and Peter. And that's my commission. That's your commission. That is our commission, that we live out this story but he is no longer, we are no longer the center of it. Jesus is, as we reminded that earlier on today. Resurrection faith, says Keller, is not blind faith that rejects human reason. It transcends but includes what we call history and what we call science. There are choices made in this account that are bizarre and ordinary. The women, the choice of women is, is strange. Also, the fact that Peter is name-checked is really moving for me. It says here, he has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So this man in white, whatever you want to call him, tell the disciples, points out that Jesus is risen and has a message to say, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Why does he do that? Peter's a disciple. Why not just tell the guys? <laughs> because Peter denied him. Because Peter did a catastrophic mess up, basically. I don't know about you, has anyone ever messed up in a catastrophic way? Well, there were more of us in the first service. I feel quite alone here. Anyway, I have. Um, and I love the fact I would put my name there, if you like, to say he gets name checked so that he knows that he is welcome through the death and resurrection, that he shouldn't live in shame anymore but he should live actually for the glory of God, a life transformed. And Peter's name check, and I prayed about this this week, for us, that we would know whatever we have done, whether it's recent or back in our past, whether it's the thing that always nips us in the bud, you know, bites our heels, whatever, that actually that verse is for us, that says we are all welcome, that there is no shame, as we heard beautifully yesterday at the women's breakfast, that actually our shame, as the stone is rolled away, so our shame goes with it. The name check of Peter. And we know from uh, looking at this story that Peter has a role in the writing of Mark. So I'm so glad that, that this happens and that he gets to uh, hear that. Decades of messianic claims ended in the death of their leader. If you read about them, there were many, many claims that were to be the Messiah or to be a messianic leader that ended in the death of their leader. And then suddenly, Jesus lived and rose again. And the movement didn't collapse, it exploded. And that's how we're here today. It did not end with death. It exploded in new life. And Jesus had said repeatedly that he would rise again on the third day, that the temple would be destroyed, but he would rebuild it in three days in another way. 
And he rebuilds his temple in you and I. We are his temple. We're referred to as that. We are those people who the resurrection power is in this week. We are those people who can testify, not in a useless way, but in a way of power. Because Jesus' life was not just a life of love. That leaves him in the, in the tomb. But if it's a life of love and power, he comes out. And many times we can think, well, I want to live a good life, so I'll copy Jesus. But actually, he has done it so that we can live in love and in power by defeating sin and death for us. In the account in Luke 24, it's slightly different. We hear, why do you look for the living among the dead? Remember how he told you, Jesus told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the handful of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day, be raised again. Another clue, another piece of evidence that I love is the transformation in the disciples. Because they go from this motley crew, getting it wrong, frustrating Jesus, maybe even frustrating us, getting it wrong, not getting it. He said it again and again. And even now, the women haven't got it. They're going to the tomb for a dead man. Nobody has got it. And suddenly, this group of motley disciples become the people who changed the Roman Empire. And so they change our world. And what fascinates me and what convinces me is that they, some of them, went to their death because of their faith in Jesus. Because they believed in the resurrection, not because they just believed in the crucifixion. It was the resurrection, if you like, that killed them. Peter was one of them. They were so convinced, so convinced because they had encountered Jesus being risen and so they went out and they, they had that power. Their words were not useless, kelos, but they were full of power. The power of our testimony, as we've heard so many times, week in, week out. And people are still encountering Jesus today in dreams, in visions, all sorts of ways. Just this week, I have heard of all sorts of visions and dreams. Yesterday at the breakfast, we heard from Rahel, who saw Jesus twice in visions that restored her beautiful testimony of relief from shame into the beauty of righteousness that Jesus had for her. I was at a breakfast with um, Rachel Hughes from Gas Street this week, and she was sharing with us a Christian nurse who felt compelled by God to go to Saudi Arabia as a Christian woman and be a nurse there. And during her time there, she met 47 women who'd had visions of a man in white or a man shining in white that had said, go and find the nurse. And they came, and she was able. 47 people. So... People are encountering Jesus today all across our world, whether that's in dreams, whether it's in visions, whether they're in, in pictures, whatever that might be. Why? Because he is risen. And I, I find that hugely moving. In fact, in our first service, David Worthington said, when Paul says he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the 500, and last of all to me, he said, no, 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 not last of all to me because he appeared to me. Now, he's not defying scripture there, but do you know what I mean? He's saying, actually, Paul, when he's writing, says he appeared last of all to me. But you and I, many of us here, can say, no, we have met him. We've met the risen Jesus, and we recognize his love for us, his freedom that he has brought us. Glenn Scrivener says this, something was unleashed on the world 20 centuries ago, such that an ignominious, 
ignominious death. I've been practicing that, still not working. Ignominious death. Life has burst out. The explosion of Christ bursting the bonds of death and inviting the world into his triumph. Most of all, the resurrection explains Jesus. It explains why the one most famous for his death has been encountered by billions as the one most fully alive. I love that. Take a photo of it, memorize it, put it on your heart, because I think that's kind of the crux of what we're saying here. Jesus is not famous for his death. He's actually famous for being fully alive and making a way for you and I to be fully alive in him now and forever. At the end of Mark, there are some extra verses which Anthony didn't read for us, and they are prefaced by Mark writing. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient manuscripts do not have these verses. And even that is helpful to me because it says there was so much scrutiny and so much integrity that they wanted us to be aware of that. So that is put before the next following verses that you might want to read when you get home. They do show us that absolute intentionality of integrity and accuracy. But they also include the commission that Jesus gives the disciples that's also found in Matthew where he says, go out into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. Go and share this story. And that's what we've been doing really over these last few weeks and what we continue to do. Go and share his story and how it intertwines with our story. How is it that we encountered him? How was it that the bus went by the garage that said he is alive, that Steve was on? And then he hears the same thing again. And Jesus is still pursuing him. And if that's you, he is pursuing you today with his great love. He chases after us. I ran away from him for years of my life. And then at 19, I found I couldn't run away any longer. It's been the best decision that I ever made. N.T. Wright says, there is a blank at the end of the story and we're invited to fill it ourselves. Do we take the resurrection for granted or have we found ourselves awestruck again at this strange new work of God? What do we know of the risen Lord? Where is he now going ahead of us? What tasks has he for us to undertake today to take the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth? Because right at the end, we hear that the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the power that accompanied it. That's the last verse in the additional verses. The disciples went out and preached everywhere. They're transformed and they take this story out. And I find real encouragement from that last piece. The Lord worked with them. He worked with them and confirmed his word by the power that accompanied it. So whatever you're facing this week, whatever it is, whatever the stone is across that you think like those women, we cannot move this thing. This same resurrection power can do immeasurably more than you and I could hope for or imagine in every life, in every one of our lives. And that is our prayer, that actually whether it's shame, whether it's fear, whether you feel you wouldn't get the name check that Peter does, whatever it is that keeps you from accepting this saving love. My prayer for us, our prayer for us today, is that we accept it either for the first time or again. Because actually we all need to be accepting this again and again and again. Because it's a wonderful mix of reason and faith. 
It's not blind faith, but it is faith. And the two marry so beautifully together in this story. Keller says, the resurrection is not a stupendous magic trick, but it is an invasion. I love that. The event that saved us, the movement from the cross to the resurrection, now remakes the lives of Christians from the inside out by the power of the Spirit. So how do we respond, you and I? There are two ways for us to live. To live as if Jesus' death is the end in the tomb or to live with the resurrection hope that these are the shadow lands, that this is the dress rehearsal with all its brokenness, with all the things that you and I are struggling with on a daily basis. He will come through for us, not just now in our lives, but eternally he has come through for us. So that our faith isn't a try-harder model of must be like Jesus. It's actually he lives in us to make us more like him so that we are those little Christs that take this resurrection hope and power out into our worlds. And I've seen that. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in your lives. I've encountered it as a pastor time after time. And often it never looks quite as we thought it would, but victory comes in the morning. Trust him for those victories.